welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Greetings, friends and fellow Damons, and welcome to episode 23 of Damonosophy 2.0, the only podcast fighting for liberty and the left-hand path. If you dig the show, please like, comment, and subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, YouTube, and SoundCloud. And for exclusive members-only content, join us on Patreon. As I said, this is episode 23. And if you're an old-school conspiracy buff and fan of William S. Burroughs, such as I am, then you know that 23 is a very significant number associated with conspiracy, synchronicity, and cynicism. Thus it is for this episode, we're bringing back our friend and teacher, Michael Aquino, former magister of the Church of Satan, founder of the Temple of Set, a Vietnam veteran and retired lieutenant colonel of the U.S. Army PSYOPs Division. Dr. Aquino has written a new book, and it's called The Satanic Bible. That's right, you heard me correctly. Only this is the Satanic Bible 50-year anniversary revision. It's not a rewrite, and it's not a reimagining. Rather, I like to think of it as a clarification, an enhancement, an undoing of ambiguity, and a remanifestation. To be sure, it is a game changer, and no one will ever be able to use those words, Satanic Bible, in quite the same way ever again. But I'll let Dr. Aquino explain that to you himself in this one-of-a-kind conversation. I want to talk about your new book. You've done this amazing thing. You've issued a revision of the Satanic Bible. So tell us all about that. The story goes back to 1971, actually, when Anton LaVey, was, uh, who'd, who'd written his Satanic Bible in uh, 1968 and uh, published it in 1969 with Avon. Mm-hmm. And in 1971, he was doing a companion work called The Satanic Rituals, um, which he had... Uh, obviously several more years of time to think about and uh, was a much more carefully assembled book. And at the same time, he was um, uh, issuing the Satanic Bible and the rituals as hardcovers as well through university books. And he had also taken another look at the Satanic Bible and he was increasingly dissatisfied with it, most immediately with its... uh, introduction by Burton Wolf, which he felt uh, treated the uh, Church of Satan pretty much as a Haight-Ashbury, flash-in-the-pan, San Francisco thing, uh, and didn't reflect its actual uh, dignity and potential. Mm -hmm. So he asked me if I would do a new introduction 
uh, for it, which I did, and that introduction appeared in both the Avon paperback and the new hardcover book in 1972, along with the Satanic Rituals. At the same time, he said that uh, this was just preliminary to his taking another detailed look at the Satanic Bible. He uh, didn't really think that it had been given the assembly care and uh, and depth that it uh, justified with a title like that. So he wanted to tackle that as a project uh, with my help uh, in the near future to reissue it. And I said, sure. But then both of us sort of uh, got involved in other projects and other um, priorities and uh, taking another look at the Satanic Bible really didn't go anywhere. And of course, in 1975, there was a um, culmination crisis in the Church of Satan where it, uh, to make a long story short, Anton pretty much changed it into a, uh, a personal fan club and an atheistic uh, orientation. And I and the original priesthood uh, had resigned from it, went off to uh, found the Temple of Set, which in its uh, place is a successor organization, and the Temple of Set left the Judeo-Christian uh, iconography completely also and went back to that of Set in ancient Egypt. So the original Satanic Bible was something of an orphan. You had a religious document here with... Uh, no church around it, no religion uh, behind it anymore. It was a sort of a relic of, of 1968. Um, and uh, yet it was still out there uh, by, as an Avon pocketbook. Uh, the university hardcover went out of print, but the Avon pocketbook uh, continued. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, with different interpretations and interests in Satanism over the years, particularly during the times of the Satanic Panic in the 1980s, uh, new generations of people still bought it, read it, sort of assumed that there was uh, a Church of Satan authentically behind it uh, that reflected this religion. And, uh, and and so you had this very odd phenomenon of a, of a sort of a book that that manifested itself as a non-fiction work, but there was no non-fiction reality uh, underlying it. Mm -hmm. And in the Temple of Set, I suppose we just said, well, we'll just uh, let it fade away. It's a piece of the past. And uh, the people who were running the Church of Satan uh, commercial business, particularly after Anton passed on in uh, the I think it was 1997. Uh, we're just as happy to sit around and collect, you know, royalties as as they might be from the Avon paperback sales, and to occasionally cite it as a backbone, you know, of of the quote unquote church, but without really paying any attention to its contents uh, in terms of authenticity or whatever. And of course, the original um, failings of the book were still there since it hadn't been touched. Um, the background of the book, as I discuss in a, in a preface in this one, is that 
the Church of Satan as an organization was uh, coming together very rapidly in the, its first couple of years and becoming something of a media sensation. And Peter Mayer, one of the editors at Avon, uh, called up uh, the Levays and said, uh, there's, there's a great market here for something like a Satanic Bible. Can you put one together? They said, sure. And they basically slapped one together from the um, mimeographed handouts mm-hmm. uh, the church was passing out to its membership. Uh, and to pad it out and to make it fat enough to uh, actually be printed as a standard paperback, um, Anton was looking around for something that was a sort of a, seemed to be a kind of a metaphysical statement from uh, Satan or the demonic powers, and he came across <clears throat> an old uh, 19, uh, 19th, early 20th century um, diatribe pamphlet in a kind of an Anne Randian flavor um, by a uh, sort of a, a racist supremacist uh, fellow by the name of, uh, who used the, the pen name of Ragnar Redbeard called Might mm-hmm. is Right. And he filled up the front uh, part of the Satanic Bible with that and called it the Book of Satan, uh, attributing the rant to uh, Redbeard, or rather to attributing it to Satan and not identifying it as something that wasn't his own work at the same time. So the people who bought the Satanic Bible assumed that Anton had just written this on behalf of Satan. And then uh, to pad the back part of it, he found John Dee's uh, Enochian Keys, um, which were, uh, again, really didn't have anything as they, as they were uh, to do with classical Satanism. They were a um, sort of a, a self-examination um, uh, incantation that John Dee had come up with during the times of Elizabeth I, and if anything were more angelic than uh, satanic, and had been reprinted accordingly down through the years by organizations such as the original Golden Dawn, and then Aleister Crowley in his Equinox. And added that to the back of the Satanic Bible, uh, just sort of changed all the God references to Satan ones, and used the 19 incantations as sort of um, theme uh, exhortations, you know, what Aleister Crowley would refer to as barbarous words of evocation. Namely, if you got to the end of a ritual and you wanted something spooky to kind of punctuate it with, then you um, went back and found the appropriate Anakian key that Anton said was uh, for curses or for sympathy or for making money or whatever. And then you um, spoke that at the back of your ritual, and that made it suitably spooky. And that, uh, plus the Redbeard thing, fattened it up enough so that he had a uh, passable paperback, and that was how the original Satanic Bible came together. Um, he also pretty much co-did this, co-slapped it together with his wife, Diane, who uh, you know, mentioned that she typed the whole thing up on her $29 typewriter you know, and uh, got it in a form to send it back to Peter Mayer so that Avon could publish it. Well, 
that brings us up to the present time where uh, over the years, despite the fact that uh, the Temple of Set had completely separated from uh, Satanism, we still had inherited you know, the mantle of our previous ten years as the Church of Satan, as the legitimate Church of Satan, which has nothing to do with the business concern that pretends to be that uh, today. And I had, for example, written a history of the Church of Satan, as, published it as a book under that name, The Church of Satan, which has been a very successful book and, and of course, recounts the, the organization's uh, history uh, during the 1966 to 1975 period. Well, after 1975, I still had some of the notes that I had made to myself concerning ways in which the Satanic Bible um, might be fixed up a bit. And uh, in the years after that, occasionally, for almost inexplicable reasons, I would um, make a few more notes. You know, I'd mm-hmm. notice the volume and say, well, you know, if, if I were going to do something, well, I would do this instead or do that instead. So, um, a few uh, months ago, around the turn of this year or so, I happened to mention this to Anton LaVey's grandson, uh, Stanton Zaharoff LaVey, mm-hmm. a nice young gentleman uh, living in Southern California. And he has always been very interested in his grandfather's uh, legacy, and he said, "Gee, I'd sure like to see some of those notes and, and uh, draft things that you were talking about." So I said, "Well, okay." So I uh, picked up a selection of them and emailed them to him, and he wrote back to me and he said, "Gosh, this is neat stuff. He <laughs> says, I think this this should really go ahead." And he says, "I don't think that this should just be allowed to die." And I said, "Well, I said for one thing, I can't I can't re-edit." Um, Anton's Satanic Bible because it was a copyrighted book uh, under his name and the copyright's controlled by the people who got control of his copyright um, after his passing and they're certainly not going to be interested in my doing something like that um, nor would I want to do something like that for uh, a book that's under the control of an insincere a uh, bunch of atheists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, well, is the title copyrighted? And I said, well, no, the ti- title, book titles aren't copyrightable. Uh, and he says, well, let's just write a whole new one. <laughs> I said, well, um, I don't know. <laughs> so to make a long story short, I began playing with that as an idea and doing it from the standpoint of kind of like a, first of all, as a sort of an archivist, you know, who was looking back at this book and assessing it and saying, um, you know, here was this previous book, and we had talked about um, reconsidering it and and redoing it, and here's how it sort of would have, I think it would have come out if we had actually gotten around to doing something like that. So... um, to make a long story short, I um, messed around with that, and, and when I was through messing, it was a little bit like 
Baron Frankenstein, who was sewing together body parts on the table, you know, and uh, and uh, finally there's a lightning storm and the thing twitches and sits up and here's Baron Frankenstein in the movie screaming, it's alive, it's alive. <laughs> so I turned around and looked at this and sort of said, well, it's alive. <laughs> right. And so when, I first, I, when, I first, when I first heard about it, I you know, heard mm-hmm. that something like this was going on. I thought, huh, what's that? What's that going to look like? But then, you know, I got this this, uh, this this copy of it that you provided me with, and I started reading through it. And, you know, one of the first things that stood out to me was, I'm glad you mentioned um, the Infertile Diatribe, so the Book of Satan, which you've mm-hmm. uh, re- re- referred to now as Satan, Gloria Ignis. And, and I remember, you know, I'm one of the, you know, I bought the Satanic Bible, that Avon edition. That was my introduction all of this when I was 13 years old, uh-huh. you know, circa 1982. One of the first things I saw in that book was in the book of Satan. There's this infernal diatribe, and it sounds like he's saying that these are the words of Satan himself. You know, that's really strongly implied there. And that mm-hmm. just, you know, that just stirred sure. my imagination at the time. And so then mm-hmm. contrast that with, you know, you know, 15 or so years later, it, it becomes common knowledge that this was just lifted from someone else. Ragnar read it's lifted from a different book. Not only is it not Satan's words, but it's not even really Anton LaVey's words. So you coming along and 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 your your re envisioning of this, um, replacing that with the Diabolicon, which is a document which is you know absolutely smacks of authenticity. Uh, from, you know, the infernal nether regions is just absolutely appropriate. And then as I go through reading the rest of the book, everything that you've done with it, the way it, 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 it follows the same structure, it follows the same spirit of it, but it goes, it goes beyond it and it goes deeper to sort of uncover those really authentic aspects of it that we really always wished were there, you know. Yeah, well, that was the idea uh, that I went at it with. And quite frankly, if if Anton LaVey uh, were alive and if he and I had reconciled and we'd ever gotten together on a project like this, I mean, I, I think that this is very much like what would have sat up on the table if we both sat down and put our heads together on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have no... Um, no conscience pangs at all about... Uh, about something that is, you know, that, that would reflect, um, you know, like a ripoff of him or anything like that. This is, I think, a, a kind of a fulfillment of something that we had just sort of set aside as a project. And um, he isn't here at the moment, but I think if he were here, I think he'd uh, uh, like it. And as I said, I think that in his more sophisticated ways. This is something that he would have been much more satisfied with than the original book, which, as I said, was sort of thrown together in a hurry to meet Avon's demands for an instant paperback. Mm-hmm. And the, yes, you know, you bring up the Diabolicon. The Diabolicon's history um, is recounted in the backstory chapter uh, of that part of it. And uh, it was a... a um, a, a religious working, a magical working, in which I uh, had 
I don't like the I, I don't like the the word channeling because it sounds sort of uh, cheap and self-serving. But let's just say that I kind of stretched my head. I thought in the direction of what um, Satan and his principal demons would think and would say, and then mm-hmm. um, wrote that down in a way that satisfied me that wasn't insulting to my concept of them. Uh, at the time, so that's the the diabolicon came to came to be as a sort of a response or reinterpretation of um, John Milton's Paradise Lost, which was shortly after I had joined the Church of Satan in 1969, and I was looking around for various source documents to read. I I found that really there there wasn't anything like a religious um, statement by Satan about uh, his ideas. The most that you found were sort of uh, sardonic criticisms of Earth, things like this, by people like Mark Twain in his Letters to the Earth, or Taylor Caldwell, Dialogues with the Devil, where um, Satan is arguing things out with Michael uh, about what a mistake God made when he created man, and so on. Mm-hmm. And that really didn't do it. There's There's a lot of heroism in John Milton's Paradise Lost, but of course, uh, John Milton was coming at it from the standpoint of uh, uh, the Judeo-Christian Bible and Christian doctrine, so so Satan was sort of pre-programmed to be the loser, the guy who made the mistake, uh, who um, wound up at the short end of the stick, so to speak, and that just didn't sit right with me, and I remember thinking, I said, well, there's always two sides to the story. So I wonder if I can understand what Satan's side of the same story would be. And that's kind of how the Diabolican uh, came together. And it was a little more bizarre because it was 1969, 1970. I was in special forces operations in Southeast Asia. And I was writing this thing kind of extemporaneously in the in a few leisure moments that I had in various operations out in the backwoods of South Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and so on. So it was very weird that way. Uh, but that's how it came together. And when I finally got the whole thing done to the point where I was satisfied with it, then I rewrote it in a nice manuscript and mailed it off to Anton LaVey in San Francisco. And his letter of response is cited in this book. He was very impressed with it. He wanted it to be central to the Church of Satan, and and indeed it was for the rest of the organization's time. It was used in the uh, priesthood ordination ceremony and other important ceremonies um, and rituals of the the church. He actually came very close to to creating a separate volume of it, in uh, cooperation with Peter Mayer in, at that 1972 time. But then again, uh, other projects sort of got in the way. So, so, so had, did he receive the, had he received your copy of the Diabolicon before the first Satanic Bible publication? No. Mm-mm. No, okay. Um, I received the, uh, he sent me a copy of the first Satanic Bible in when it was first issued by Avon, which would have been around roughly around November of 1969. Okay. Uh, he assembled it around 1968, 
and then it took Avon a better part of a year or so to actually put it out there. And I uh, wrote the Diabolicon in early 1970, and I really wasn't thinking about the Satanic Bible one way or the other uh, when I was working on the Diabolicon uh, working. Uh, it was there, you know, like you. I, I took the uh, Ragnar Redbeard thing as, as a diatribe by Anton on behalf of Satan, but again, mm-hmm. it, it didn't say the kinds of metaphysical things that I personally was interested in, I suppose. I wanted to know what the, what the secrets of the universe were as, as Satan understood them, so to speak, and what the significance of humanity was and you know, why we're here, so to speak, what we can do with ourselves. And um, the might is right thing is, is, is a grouchy rant, sort of an Ayn Rand kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it's very uh, angry. Yeah, you know, sort of a Conan the, Conan the Barbarian uh, <laughs> yeah. beating on your chest and then, uh, you know, dragging women off into your cave, so to speak. He even has a broad act in it, too. Oh, yes. Well, as a matter of fact, there's, there's an entire chapter of uh, the Redbeard Might is Right, in which he, he goes on about women and how they should be subjected and uh, brought to heel as, uh, you know, good sexual pets and things like this. And <laughs> I always used to kid him, and I said, well, I, said, I, I guess that if you'd put that in there, Diane would have had you sleeping out on the couch for the next six months. You know, <laughs> yeah, you got that right. So yeah. um, that was Might is Right. I mean, it was a... It was a, a pulpit-pounding Aryan Superman speech that you'd uh, that would be appropriate to a Conan movie, I guess, you know, but it didn't really answer my kinds of questions, and that's why I undertook the Diabolican working. Sure. Another thing that I really like is the indulgence in Brimstone piece, where you kind of go through the, the nine satanic statements and reiterate these in terms of indulgence. Mm-hmm. Well, um, again, um, first of all, of course, it, I could not, um, if I didn't want to cross copyright problems, you know, I can't very well just copy the nine satanic statements. And indeed, um, I, I didn't entirely like all of them. I thought, you know, some of them had interesting points to make. Some of them were a little on the casual side, you know, like Satan has been the best friend the church has ever had because he's kept it in business all these years. Well, yeah. you know, that that's a little, you know, a bit of a cheap shot kind of thing. So right. I said to myself, well, Anton's fifth degree word, his magical word as a magus was indulgence, you know, expanded to indulgence instead of abstinence. So why don't I look at the various ideas that the nine satanic statements brought out in in terms of the concept of indulgence and see what comes of that. So I came up with nine focused statements around the term and the concept of indulgence and put that in its place. And that uh, symbol that sits on top of the page that was in the original satanic Bible is the old alchemical symbol for brimstone. There was no reason to put that on that page in the original Satanic Bible. I guess he, for some reason they just felt like putting a, a, uh, an emblem on that page and put the brimstone 
emblem, which uh, sort of looks like an Eastern Orthodox cross with a, an infinity curly Q at the bottom. Uh, and he didn't explain it. Nobody was curious about it. I don't think anybody even paid much attention to it except that it was there. So when I got to this, I said, well, let's, let's resurrect old Mr. Brimstone and uh, call this uh, by that name. And that kind of gives it a little bit of historical uh, nostalgia, you know, for the initial volume, but gives it a little tweak of color. So that's how I renamed it that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's excellent. Um, I also like that you added this fifth section, uh, Yankee Rose, because the original Satanic Bible, you know, had these four sections, you know, Satan, Lucifer, Belial, Leviathan, kind of corresponding to the four elements. And it ended with that mysterious word, Yankee Rose, that... You know, it, 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 for me initially when I read this, no one had any idea what that could possibly have meant. It was just this huge mystery kind of tacked on to the, to the very end of it all. And it just it gave you that sense that, you know, I bet there's this whole other story behind this. And so the fact that you come along and you put this whole extra section dealing with that is just, is just excellent. Um, and so one of the things that you talk about in there is... Uh, City of Dreadful Night, which is kind of a recounting of the history of the Black House. And mm -hmm. apparently there was a secret gateway to hell. <laughs> yes. Well, the, I think that, you know, today, for today's audiences who don't, didn't live through the Haight-Ashbury era, you know, don't know about the original church, weren't there for it. Um, and, of course, the, the house itself is gone now. You know, it's... Mm -hmm. Uh, disappeared, and now there's this really blase, you know, looking uh, condominium in its place. Uh, they, they even changed the house number on it. You know, I, I think it's 6118 now because uh, they don't want the association of the old address. It's a little bit like that. Wow. I think I quoted in there, you know, that line from Lovecraft where the gods had cursed the king of Runigar or something so that he would not only cease to be, but cease ever to have been, you know, the, mm -hmm. the ultimate of curses. And the, the, to me, the, the history of the Church of Satan was bound up to in that house because uh, Anton and Diane had really redone, redid the thing, you know, redecorated it and reconfigured it as a, as a, a nice, spooky Satan house and kind of a fun house in many ways. And you really can't get into the flavor of the Church of Satan without appreciating the house. At least it seems to me that way. If they just, if they'd been living in an apartment in Daly City while they did the whole thing, it just wouldn't have been the same. Right. You know. <laughs> and uh, I, so I had this kind of, I, I said, if I'm going to do this Satanic Bible, then for people to really kind of grok it, I need to tell a little bit about the house, you know, that kind of surrounded this thing, a little bit like the house of Rotwang in um, Thea Bonharbu's Metropolis, where this crazed inventor who came up with the famous Robotrix to overthrow society uh, lived in this really bizarre little magician's house in the middle of this ultra-fancy uh, futuristic city. 
So I added Yankee Rose as a new section to the book, which is sort of a little historical profile of the house, um, not as detailed a tour of it as I gave in my Church of Satan book, of course, um, but enough to, I think, give the new reader who is unfamiliar with it a bit of the flavor, and mm-hmm. then, of course, to finish it off with a uh, bit of a Lovecraftian uh, uh, yarn, you know, to uh, give people a little fun trip there. And... Uh, uh, the, you know, the, there were lines in there that I simply couldn't just not write, you know, like, uh, well, Anton and Diane, you know, they were like any other uh, pleasant young married couple in the Richmond district, you know, with two daughters and a lion. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you can't make up stuff like this, right? Right. So... Uh, then I have a little footnote there, you know, about Togari the lion, and he was... You know, the, the house pet, he started out like a big cat and wound up as a much bigger cat, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when his roaring began keeping the neighbors awake, he finally went down to Tippy Hedron's preserve down by L.A., where he spent his later years with other lions and tigers and things. Um, but it, it was a story that I thought needed to be told with a little background as to spooky San Francisco and, and indeed the spooky state of California because there's a lot of creepy weirdness about this state and a lot of creepy weirdness about San Francisco. You know, it's a little bit like H.P. Lovecraft who, um, if you read some of his stories and then you look around New England, you say, this is a weird area. <laughs> mm-hmm. got Innsmouth and Dunwich and, and all this stuff going on here, so it isn't just a normal state. I mean, this is a creepy part of the United States. So I said, well, California is creepy too, and this is sort of the culmination of its creepiness. So I give everybody a little background of some of the weird stuff in California. You know, there's a story, you know, the... There's articles in the Los Angeles Times uh, where there were excavations under Los Angeles to find this big lizard city underneath uh, where the L.A. Dodger Stadium is in Chavez Ravine. That's all true. You know, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like it was invented, but it's, it's, if you go back and you look in the old issues of the L.A. Times, the articles are all there, you know, about the, mm-hmm. the excavations that were going to take place. It wasn't followed up, so either the excavation found something and was gobbled up by monsters, mm-hmm. or it didn't find anything and the Times didn't bother to report it. You, you, you have to fi- figure that one out for yourself. It depends on how far into the basements of, of Dodger Stadium you care to go. A little bit like the Opera House in Paris, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to keep going down there, you'll definitely find all those caverns that Gaston Leroux was talking about when he uh, wrote The Phantom of the Opera. Uh, they're there, you know. Um, mm-hmm. He just took advantage of them and, and uh, wrote his story. But the, the sub-sub-sub-basements going all the way down there in the Paris Opera House are there. Mm-hmm. Again, some of the stuff you can't make up. So... Mm-hmm. When I was, uh, uh, you know, my, my tale in there about the, these caverns and, uh, and uh, giant networks of underground um, tubes and sewers and things that underlie the Richmond district, this is all true. The place is a giant warren of this stuff, you know, and it all goes out to the edge of San Francisco by what's called Seacliff, uh, where the Sutro Bath ruins are, and... Uh, 
the Temple of Set used to uh, uh, hold occasional nameless rites, you know, out there uh, under Magister Eric Caution and uh, and the Order of the Trapezoid, down by some of these caves, you know, and some of them caves are have since been cemented over and bricked up, I guess, to keep Cthulhu inside instead of coming out and ravaging San Francisco. <laughs> uh, but this, this, again, this is all stuff you can go see for yourself. It's there. You know, the truth is stranger than fiction kind of thing. Well, and then there's, so, uh, there's sinkholes too, right? There's an occasional danger. Oh, yes, hole. yes. Well, that's when we get the, some of these big rains and things out here during flood season, um, the entire sea cliff in Richmond area in San Francisco is kind of infamous for having these giant sinkholes appear where a, a whole half of a street block suddenly goes boom, you know, down there. And what's happened is that one of these big sewer tunnels and, uh, you know, or uh, storm drains down there has just simply collapsed because of the uh, water pressure or whatever. And they don't really discuss that in um, in, in the news media around here, nobody mentions this big thing. I guess they don't want to get everybody out there excited that they're living over this big Swiss cheese thing. Might kind um, of affect uh, the property values out there. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, this this does happen out here occasionally. And oops, there goes a piece of Richmond again. You know, <laughs> and you then you see a photo or something on the news, and there's <laughs> half a block. It's just boom, like this. And San Francisco just seems to take it as a matter of course, you know, like, oh, okay, so what else is new and what's for dinner tonight? You know? <laughs> um, and then they rebuild it and pad it up and life goes on. But, right. yeah, the, the, after the 1906 earthquake and fire, see, people don't understand what a weird thing this city is. It's mostly, it's, it's built on a bunch of sand dunes um, on, for most of it on its main part, but then there are a few granite hills that stick up uh, around the top edges, one of which I'm fortunately living on myself, uh, which is why we don't have any earthquake problems here. Um, but the, uh, the, the eastern area of the city, down by the financial district that goes out into San Francisco Bay, is this huge graveyard of um, dead ships that all... Mm sank in place there at the time of the, 19, at the 1849 gold rush, you know, the mm. 49ers. People heard there was gold out here, and everybody who could got on a ship, came here, uh, parked it in, at the waterfront, dashed off it, and went running up to mine gold. And these, this huge assemblage of ships just rotted in place out here and finally all just kind of sank in place, and then it was sort of built over, and that's what you see the financial district here in the city today. Um, blocks and blocks and blocks, which is all just this huge graveyard of ships underneath. And every once in a while, somebody builds a new um, skyscraper. And when they're you know, digging down to uh, uh, make the foundations of the things, the next thing you know, they say, oh, we just found the masts of a ship down here and, and uh, a keg of rum and stuff like this, you know, and... Uh, and and you find out that about the that part of the city. Well, um, after the 1906 fire and earthquake, uh, there was a lot of concern about uh, water uh, evacuation and water tunnels, things like this. And 
And the area that they chose to do all this major work in was the Richmond area, which is sort of the top part of San Francisco. It's just below um, the Presidio, but north of Golden Gate Park, and it's out towards the west coast there of uh, the uh, uh, Land's End area of beaches. So they began digging all that up and constructing all these storm drains and things down there. There's this particularly huge one that's big enough to drive a car through. And indeed, when it was constructed, um, they did drive a car through it with the mayor and everybody else, you know, from one end to the other. Uh, they got all the way out to the cliffs uh, where the thing emptied into the Pacific Ocean. And they held their little commission, you know, commissioning ceremony there, so to speak. And then after the mayor had left, they actually had to back the car all the way through the tunnel because there was no way to turn it around or <laughs> do anything else with it. It was just hanging out over a cliff there. <laughs> so uh, that's a little, again, a, a little piece of, of San Francisco's bizarre history. And with uh, 6114, you know, California Street, the Black House, sitting right smack on top of this Lovecraftian monstrosity down there of all this horrible stuff, you know, so when Anton showed me this big hatch there in the basement of the house, or you know, it was actually sort of the ground floor of the house because there was no basement basement. Um, and he said, well, this you know, basically is an access you know, to all that uh, you know, big system down there. And he says, it's you know, never, been, never tried to climb down and explore it, you know, but there it is. You know. I said, that's kind of cool, you know, but again, it was a conversation topic that we had, were chewing over one evening, and that's uh, where that, so I recounted that and uh, Lovecrafted it up a little bit for the book to give people some fun. That's excellent. I love that part of it. And, you know, the Black House and how it's all interwoven in with uh, the history of San Francisco um, makes me think about like the West, you know, and, and magical lore and stuff. There's all this stuff about the West, look to the West, you know, um, and all of this, the location of all of this, the, the magic of place, if you will, is all very much, I mean, it's about as, you know, it's about as West as you can get. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, I don't know what it is about the, well, I, of course the sun goes West <laughs> and everybody wants to chase after it, I suppose. Uh, since the times of ancient Egypt. Um, but, of course, you've got Atlantis, you know, that's out there in the ocean, and you've got, um, then, of course, there's America, you know, and I've, I've got a wonderful quote in there from William Burroughs, you know, who, who was, mm. of course, one of, the, one of the greats of the Beats era uh, here and, and uh, became a violent, you know, great author, also a violent drug addict and, wound up, you know, dead in Mexico, I think, at some point from drug overdosing and so on. But he said, you know, America is, I've, I don't know these exactly, but it was something like America is not a young country. It's old and evil and dirty, you know, before, mm-hmm. the, before the settlers, before the Indians. And then he said, the evil is there waiting. And I said, oh, God, I love it. I've got to put this in there, you know. Yeah. So sure, you know, you, when you're looking around for spooky America, you wind up in the, in the West Coast, and here's California, and then you wind up in the spookiest of the cities, which is um, San Francisco, and you go to the westernmost part of it, and you wind up in the Richmond out there by the Sutro ruins of the old spooky Sutro baths, and that's about as, as west as west as west you can get, you know, unless you want to go out to Hawaii, 
Mm-hmm. And the Temple of Set has had nameless rites and unspeakable orgies, you know, orgies out there with volcanoes and things. So, oh yes. So and I believe uh, that's, uh, the, that's that. And I believe the West and uh, the uh, cosmology of the Satanic Bible that corresponds with Leviathan, right? The Book of Leviathan. Well, there was no, there was no, there was no um, calendar thing associated with those names in the Satanic Bible. Those four names: Satan, Lucifer, Belial. Leviathan uh, actually popped up in a um, 19th century, uh, early 20th century book by the Order of the Golden Dawn's um, Samuel L. McGregor Mathers. He was a sort of a sort of a predecessor, a bit of a mentor of Aleister Crowley for a while. And Mathers did uh, uh, a lot of research in Paris, and he found this old volume called The Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage, which was a nice, spooky, sort of Kabbalistically kind of thing. He did an English uh, translation of it, which was published, and in that book, for no particular reason, um, Satan, Lucifer, Belial, and Leviathan were identified as the quote-unquote four crown princes of hell. Mm-hmm. And that sort of became an icon phrase, and you can immediately object and say, well, you know, Satan and Lucifer are the same thing, and Leviathan is a big fish, you know, who had nothing particularly to do with demons, <laughs> and Belial is a, you know, variation on the, on the uh, Canaanite god Baal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and so on, so that this was sort of 19th century grab-ass Kabbalism, <laughs> but for whatever reason, you know, the four names got, you know, sort of plonked in place as the four crown princes of hell, and Anton just picked that up and used that to uh, section off the Satanic Bible, roughly into an initial statement by Satan, a philosophical section, the Book of Lucifer, a um, a uh, sort of a, a Boy Scout handbook, uh, how to do magic section called uh, Belial. And then Leviathan was just sort of some incantations themselves, and including the uh, Enochian keys that you could sort of plug into your ritual work. So that's how those names came together. And I, for the sake of tradition, you know, I used the same four names here, uh, explaining them again a little bit about the Mathers background and so on. And then I also gave them these uh, new subtitles myself, you know, the, the glory of fire, you know, the glory of air, the glory of earth, the glory of mm-hmm. water. And yeah. then I, for the new one, for the Yankee Rose one, it was the, the glory of darkness, you know, ah. sort of a, a, a punctuation, you know. So those, that was a little tweak of mine uh, just to add a little bit more glamour flavor to it. Well, and by adding that fifth section, so you had the four sections with the elements, like from the original, but now that you have a fifth section, it corresponds with the pentagram. Sure. <laughs> well, you know, in, and indeed, we, one of the things that this gets into a lot more than the original Satanic Bible, of course, is the, the old sigil of Baphomet, you know, that appeared on the cover and was the trademark or, you know, the, not the trademark, but the insignia that we used for the Church of Satan. And like so many other things in the Church of Satan, nobody had really questioned the Baphomet. You know, well, where did this come from? You know, why does it look like this? You know, why is Leviathan's name in it, on it instead of Satan and so on? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, we just used it. You know, it was there. I mean, it, it, uh, it, it 
attracted Anton's attention because he had this big old book called the uh, 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 the I, I don't think it was the history of magic, but it was a big compendium of coffee table book about magic by a Frenchman named Maurice Bessy. And on the cover, it was, it was this big black book, and it had this big silver emblem on the front cover. And he, it was a, a book that you see him posing with in a lot of pictures at the time because it looked nice and sinister. And he just said, well, that's a good emblem. We'll use that for the Church of Satan. So we did. But, again, nobody did a whole lot of thinking about it. But, I, again, in the appendices to this, there are four appendices back there, and one of them I take up the history of the Baphomet from the times of the Knights Templar on up to the present time and uh, relate its history and explain some of the things about it. And I said, well, you know, the, uh, when Bessie got around to it, you know, the, the uh, name of Satan in Hebrew has four letters, you know, and he needed something with five, you know, so he looked around and Leviathan happened to have five letters, so that's how come Leviathan wound up there. And that was that, you know, so... I to make it on the fun side. When we got to the back of this, I I showed some of my re, personal redoodlings re, re of it. Both Anthony and I played with the emblem over the years, and uh, some funny stories in there too, of course. And uh, I didn't like the way the goat looked. He looked like he'd run into a tree or something. His nose was all, you know. <laughs> so. Uh, this is back in around 1972 or whatever. I was priest uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and I didn't have, a, didn't have a goat around, so I drafted my Irish setter, Brandy, and I said, you just sit there and let me you know, sketch you. So Brandy said, okay, you know, give me a milk bone, and you're on. And, uh, and so I created a kind of a Brandy mat, you know, which was a um, nice, nicer-looking nosed... Um, Baphomet figure who didn't look like he'd run into a tree. And then, of course, later on, I was saying, well, I wonder what I can do about the Leviathan, which doesn't fit. I said, Satan fits, but when I tried to plugging the, just the, the English alphabet in there, um, it, 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 it just didn't have the je ne sais quoi. You know, it, it yeah. needs something spooky and mysterious there. Uh, and, of course, nobody can read Hebrew except maybe a few rabbis or something. So when you have five weird Hebrew letters there, it looks spooky, like the Anakin keys. But if you just put S-A-T-A-N there, it looks dorky. You know, I'm uh -huh. sorry. It just doesn't do it. Right. <laughs> so I had to look around and find a nice spooky alphabet, which I eventually did. And then I, I just replaced it with S-A-T-A-N. And it looks fine, you know. Mm -hmm. But I, I used the old one. Uh, for this book uh, throughout, just for the sake of tradition, because that's the way we use the emblem, you know, during the time of the Church of Satan. Yeah, and speaking of Leviathan, which I am a big fan, one of the things that you talk about in your, that you focus on in your uh, Leviathan section is the Book of Enoch and the backstory of the Book of Enoch which I think is, like, really great because there's so many, I mean, so many people don't know anything about that. You know, mm -hmm. every, everyone knows about the Enochian Keys. Everyone has heard of, heard of the Enochian Keys, has some familiarity, but there's such a lack of knowledge about Enoch and where any of this stuff comes from, 
um, and, and and the things that have like grown from that too, which is a lot of the uh, you know mythology about the black flame. Yeah, well, I set out to, among other things, as I said, I, I set out to. When I say backstory, I mean kind of that. In other words, you sort of look at these words that flash by you and say, well, what did, where did this word come from? Where is it meaning? You know, who's, who is this guy, Enoch? You know, um, Why were there keys named after him? Why should we care? You know, uh, mm-hmm. And so on. And then I, you just start doing researching on this, and then you find out all this stuff. And that's why I put it all in the backstory there so that people understand what, what Enoch was all about. And, of course, there was quite a, a big section in there of all the people who've screwed around with the Enochian keys, you know, over the decades, trying to figure them out, make sense of them, um, including myself, including finally, you know, the word of set working uh, that I did that I, as far as I'm concerned, brings everything into real clarity, real crystal clear meaning, and that's what's uh, reproduced here. But the original uh, text of the thing, as John D wrote it down, was all distorted in the Golden Dawn books and in the Crowley books and in the Satanic book Bible. And to I didn't realize this until one of our early members in the Temple of Set, who was in England, said, how would you like to have the original text of the Enochian Keys? And I said, well, sure. He says, I can get them for you from on uh, Microfish, you know, um, from the uh, British Museum. I said, cool, you know, because mm-hmm. that's where they're stored, you know. And uh, so I got this big, giant package of microfilm or microfish, printed it out, and what you're reading in this book are the, is, is the exact, exact image of the Anakian keys in Anakian, the way John D. personally wrote them down in his, in his journals. Wow. That's amazing. And so the uh, story of Enoch, you know, like I said, it brings out about a lot about the black flame. And so looking at it in that perspective, there's a lot of that. Do you, do you consider there's a lot of that energy that comes through the keys? Well, I think, <clears throat> as I said, in the, in the word of set working, uh, it's a, a statement, uh, in this case, by set or the prince of darkness uh concerning the the conscious evolution of humanity and the symbolism of the black flame uh is a sort of the promethean uh rendition of it as we would as we would express it uh, like the flame of prometheus you know that brought wisdom or the garden of eden you know the the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that means that you're no longer just a, a, a mechanism of stimulus response um, uh, instinct, but suddenly you're a conscious being that can... That can the, the phrase that I like to use is to assign meaning to phenomena. Mm-hmm. And that's what a god can do. You know, a god looks out at something and says, I, I, I now assign significance and meaning and interpretation to this thing. And to the extent that I convey that to others, you know, that's, that's an act of divinity. So uh, we, of course, in the Temple of Set, refer to this as the gift of Set, the, this uh, sense of, of self-awareness and, and our ability to assign meanings to things and to create things you know, that uh, uh, 
either from composite things that existed before or from completely new things. Um, and that is the, if you really want to look at it, you know, hard and hardly and carefully, that's what being a god is all about, is creation and assigning meanings to things. So that's where that enters into it. And you can call it the black flame, you can call it the fire of Prometheus, you can call it the gift of Set. It's all the, it's, it's all the same thing. It's this, mm-hmm. it's, I, I go into a bit of the history of, of humanity in here. Um, and of course, this all takes place somewhere in the missing link period of, of human evolution where you had something that started out as just one more animal on the planet and somewhere in there, uh, you know, whether it was a, a monolith uh, in 2001 um, or, or what, there was a, an event or a development or an aberration that switched us over into being conscious beings uh, and beings capable of assigning meaning and assigning values, which is where we are. And that's what makes us significant. You know, that's why we aren't dogs and cats and, and uh, trees and things like this. The difference of us is that we assign meanings to things. Do you believe that there was intervention with mankind during that time period from a, an alien source? I think it's pretty much inescapable that there has to be an externality involved here. Uh, mm-hmm. things, don't, things don't create themselves. You know, when uh, I go into this in, in my book, Mind War, uh, Mindstar, in considerable mm-hmm. depth, I think, because... Um, there is, you know, Plato first developed this as his you know, theory of the forms that there is there is an original cosmic principle of you know of, of manifestation or reality, and that it particularizes itself in various physical entities or phenomena. And what we have come to understand as Satan or Set is the universal form of isolate self-consciousness which is particularized in people like you and like me. So uh, it's, it's, it's not so much that something just kind of reached out like the blue fairy in Pinocchio and said, you know, you're a, a boy instead of a puppet. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's more that, that we're a kind of a living extension and physical manifestation of this ongoing universal principle. So that we, you know, when people say, well, where is Set? He's in you. I mean, he's, he's of you. You're, you're Set. You're not the only Set, you know, but you're an extension, a manifestation, a particularization of Set, just like you are of Satan. You know, that's when I, in, in Satan's foreword to this Bible, mm-hmm. um, he says, you know, you want to meet God? Go look in the mirror. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's quite serious. But you have to understand what being a god is all about. It isn't just saying, oh, look in the mirror, I see an old guy with a white beard, you know, like Gandalf or something. Well, nope. Uh, that has nothing to do with it. It's, to be a god is to be an independent, isolate thing with self-consciousness and will. And that's where all this kind of comes together. So are all human beings potentially gods? I, well, yes, and the... the the magic word there is potentially because 
you, you know, people can go through life and, and be stimulus response robots, and a lot of people do. Uh, they just kind of bounce through life. You know, something hits them and they hit back. Uh, whether they get hungry and they have to work so they can go buy food, you know, or whatever. Um, and, and that's as far as they want to go. They don't want to really look into the the reasons for this, the the, the whys. Um, and indeed, the whole world, the whole realm of conventional science has nothing to do with why. It has everything to do with how. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you take science classes in high school or college, they'll say, okay, well, if you, know, you mix chemical A and chemical B together and you get an explosion or something like this. So that's the how. You know? So we now understand the formulas and we understand how the planets go around each other and so on. And, but when, as soon as some kid says, well, why is this happening? The teacher just says, shut up. You know? uh, we don't know why it's happening. It's just there. You know? That's not mm-hmm. our job. We're just telling you how this machinery is functioning so that you can predict you know, whether the sun's going to come up tomorrow or so on. But we have no idea why things are set up the way they are. So the whole idea of metaphysics gets into the why. And religion, conventional religion, is kind of a cheap shot at that. It just comes up with um, some grab-ass fairy tales and says, oh, there was a god or there was a bunch of gods, so they created things like this. You know, and they did it for, to be mean or they did it for the fun of it or because they were bored uh, or just to, you know, they created people so they'd have something to jerk around uh, or whatever. But it's, it's all very puerile stuff. I mean, when I was a kid, my parents said, well, we should probably send him around to a few Sunday schools in case, you know, he needs some kind of religious education, you know. And they sent me around to a few different Sunday schools, all of which interested me about as much as Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny did. Uh, But I I didn't, there was nothing there that intrigued me that I was suddenly getting an explanation of of what's real and what's behind all this. Mm Mm-hmm. That actually is why I got interested in the Church of Satan, because when I went to um, one of Anton's lectures uh, that he was giving for the public in 1969, um, yes, he was having fun with himself, and yes, he was being Mr. Spooky and, and so on. I said to myself, I think this guy has actually got a grip with his maybe with his fingernails or something, but he's got a grip on what's really going on here. What's really, what's the mystery of the universe, you know? And I want to find out more about that. So I'm going to get more involved with this. And that's sort of how I became more involved with, with that. The whole concept of, of, of black magic, of, of Satanism has to do with finding out the why and finding it out and being able to um, control various parts of it. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the, you know, the, the, the great secret there, you might say. I, I feel that a lot, mo- most of the religions, the right-hand path religions, the great religions of the world, the popular religions, that at one time when they were starting out, they were... Basically, they were esoteric systems where people were trying to, for that time period, for where man was and where knowledge was, they were trying to uh, express metaphysical truths. But over time, they, 
came under the control of centralized authority systems and people got involved people got involved with them and realized that they could be good mechanisms for controlling people so they became about controlling people telling people you know to be obedient and to do this and you know go to church and to, you know who you can have sex with and, and and things like that well when we were a a, a young, stupid race uh, of, of intelligent animals, everything around us was mysterious. You didn't mm-hmm. know what this thing, this big glowing thing was in the daytime or what the lighter glowing thing was in the nighttime. So people would come up with um, fairy tales, you know, and, and legends to explain these things. And to some extent, they could be used for predictive purposes. I mean, if you, be, if you began to figure out what was going on up in the heavens with the movement of the zodiac and so on, then you could tell what time it was that the Nile was going to overflow or that it was a good time to plant things uh, so that they'd uh, blossom, you know, in springtime and so on. So gradually, science uh, replaced... Uh, these early, earliest religious myths in terms of what's happening when. But science did not address the why, never did. And religion never tried to go anywhere, conventional religion, with the why either. Uh, it's just stuck with these old myths. I think there is a certain amount of fear in there because I, I think that probably most people, most ordinary people, are unprepared to ask the question why. They're afraid of the answer. They, the idea, for example, of being told that you're, you know, that you're sort of your own god and responsible for your own morality, uh, is profoundly terrifying to some people. They want, they want to be pet dogs mm-hmm. of of a, of a controlling god, even if it's a nasty god, you know, like the like the Hebrew one. Uh, as long as there's somebody telling them what to do and saying you don't really want to concern yourself with this, it's a little bit like. You know Dorothy and the and Oz the Great and Terrible and you know don't look behind the curtain you know just just to pay attention to the big speaking head up there uh, don't pay no attention to the little guy behind the curtain you know mm-hmm. and a very important uh, I can't overestimate you know the value and the importance of George Orwell's 1984 because in it he really really goes at the guts of human society and human interactions and he just tears the tears this thing a whole new asshole if you'll pardon the pun no. um, he there's one point at there where he's questioning winston smith uh, his his uh, his torture subject so to speak and and he says now explain to me you know so why does why does the party exercise control you know and power like it does over this totalitarian Society and Winston sort of says, "Well, you're you're ruling over us for our own good because you think that humans are are you know too stupid to know what's best for them." And uh, and suddenly he screams out in pain because O'Brien has just twisted the torture device and given him a shock. And O'Brien says, "That was stupid, Winston. Stupid." You know. So I'll tell you the answer. You know, the object of power is power. You know, you seize power for its own sake, to exercise it, you know, because that's what you do with power. This has nothing to do with um, altruism per se. You know, it's mm-hmm. its own thing. And then if you have 
if you have your own ethics, they're your own ethics, but it's certainly not something that you're obedient to some externalized God, you know, like for Ten Commandments and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the whole of 1984 is a great wake-up pill. You know, it's a big red pill in the, in the metaphor of the Matrix to take so many um, myths, you know, of social functioning and just sort of tear them apart and show them on all their rawness and their, their reality, you know. There's one point there where one of the fellow party members, his name is Syme, is explaining some of these guts of the system to Winston Smith over lunch. And, and Winston Smith, he suddenly reflects to himself. He says, um, one of these days, Syme is going to be vaporized. He sees too clearly and he speaks too plainly. The party does not like such people. One of these mm-hmm. days he will disappear. It is written in his face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes I feel a little bit like Simon. I'm just a little, you know, when, when sometimes when people attack me or go after me, I say to myself, well, you know, that's, I see too clearly and I speak too plainly, and some people can't handle that. Yeah. And I'll probably get some of the same, you know, for this. There are a lot of people who are only happy with the Satanic Bible because it was a fairly elementary thing that Anton did in 1968 that they can be sort of dismissive of and, and uh, you know, put in its place, kind of like wearing an old pair of Levi's that's become comfortable. <clears throat> and to suddenly be confronted with a, a far more sophisticated Satanic Bible that's, that uh, goes into the why of things in reality is going to shake up some people, I think. And... Uh, you know, suddenly it's it's sort of doing what it, its title implies that it should, as as Satan says in his foreword to this. Uh, I invited uh, Stanton, his uh, Anton's grandson, to do an afterword, and he said, well, that's kind of an honor, you know, considering who, who Michael got to do the foreword. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. I think that's so awesome that uh, Stanton was involved with this and I really loved what he wrote in it. Um, and I, I, I'd met Stanton myself like some years ago, like in, uh, 2005 or so when my mm-hmm. band Asmodeus X was playing in, uh, Hollywood, he came out to one of the shows and I met him there and he's just a really, really cool guy. Um, and, and so it's just really great seeing him, uh, involved with this. I'll tell you one of the one of the oddities that I there's no really place to mention it in the book or anything, but I I only met him for the first time maybe a year or so ago, mm-hmm. and uh, when we got together and had lunch, the first thing that struck me is um, this guy not only looks like Anton Lavey, but he sounds like him, and his mannerisms are just like Anton's. Is that right? Um, he's got the same voice. He's got the same way of speaking. He's got that same sort of pause to his inflections and in the way that he says things. He's a very polite person, you know, very uh, respectful, deferential, and so on. But he 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 looks for all the world like Anton Levey, uh, age thirty or thirty-five. Uh huh. And it's creepy. Yeah. Um, I've remarked that, you know, I, I say to him occasionally, when I, say, I said, well, as you know, your, your grandmother, Diane and Anton, didn't exactly break up under 
friendly circumstances, I said, uh, and he's close to Diane, and I said, I said just, just remember that if sudden, suddenly, for, for no reason, Diane just sort of hauls off and socks you, don't take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> you just look too damn much, and you sound too damn much like Anton Zander. <laughs> and I don't think he's affecting this. I mean, he, he obviously affects the look to some point where he grows a bit of a beard and shaves his head and so on, and he mm-hmm. and dresses in black and all this, but there's a lot of his personal mannerisms that he wouldn't have known Anton well enough to try to emulate, but somehow the, the DNA or whatever it is, is is peeking through there, and it's, as I said, it's, it's kind of funny and it's slightly creepy in a way. <laughs> That's amazing. So you've also included something in this satanic Bible called the Ninth Solstice Message. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what sort of uh, what sort of change are you looking to bring about with this? Well, the Ninth Solstice Message. was a kind of a spontaneous thing that happened on the ninth solstice, uh, you know, the, the solstice, the north solstice of the year nine, which would have been 1974. And the Church of Satan was, <clears throat> was undergoing a variety of different kinds of growing pains at that time um, and, and directional considerations, you might say. Um, so I didn't set out to answer anything, but I was doing a, a greater black magic working on the, on the ninth solstice. And then I began uh, writing this thing down in much the same way as I'd written down the Diabolican uh, many years previously, except this was just a one-piece thing. I, for want of something more interesting to call it, I just referred to it as the ninth solstice message. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I sent this up to Anton uh, and said... Uh, Here's this, you know, um, and and he sent a a, uh, a note back to me, you know, um, which I reproduce in the book here, in which he um, essentially accepted it, said it's very cybernetic, an uh, interesting turn of phrase, in its appearance and timing, and uh, basically accepted its authenticity. Um, one of the interesting things about it is that it mentions a pact that he had made with Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I asked Anton about that. I'd never heard anything about that. Um, next time I was up in San Francisco, and he said, well, yes, you know, when I was going to start out the church, I wrote a formal pact with Satan, and I'll show it to you. And he went down into the basement and came up with his, his strong box in which he kept his personal papers, and, and there was this handwritten pact, you know, with Satan uh, that he had, it was entitled, I, you know, I, I, I didn't uh, get a copy of it or anything, but I remember at the top of it, it was just simply entitled, My Pact. And it was mm-hmm. all handwritten out by Anton, and it was his personal oath and dedication to Satan, and uh, he had obviously taken it seriously enough and kept it all those years so that... Uh, it was right there in his uh, most important personal papers, you know. Um, so that was uh, an interesting 
interesting side effect of this to me because I'd never heard about that before and didn't know about it when the ninth solstice message was being written out. So I put that in there as, as again, a piece of history that sort of puts things in context in, in the year 1974, which, of course, was the year before the Church of Satan came to its dead end. And uh, uh, I, I didn't really comment on it there. I just put it out there, let people, okay, there it is. You know, mm-hmm. Take it for what it's worth, like pretty much like Anton did. Well, we all know by now that amazing things happen when Michael Aquino decides to just put things out there. I'm a curious guy. Um, I, people use, occasionally ask me, well, how did you get into this stuff? You know, why did you get interested in devil worship or magic or Satanism? And I said, well, I've, I've always wanted to figure out what's going on. <laughs> you know, I want to know about the mysteries of the universe, and if I figure something out or if I discover something, I kind of like to share it. Mm-hmm. And that explains me. I mean, I, I, um, I mentioned in there, you know, that, that some people got involved with the Church of Satan because they had had a bad time with Christianity or whatever, and so they wanted to get even, or they, or they wanted to get rich or get a girl or something. Um, okay, I, I can understand people who, who had uh, motivations this way and that way. My motivation was just to find out what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a bug up my ass about anything previously. I'd never, as I said, I'd never had any previous strong religious affiliations of any sort. Uh, I just thought Christianity was another fairy tale. And I didn't really have a, um, a like or dislike about it any more than I had a dislike or like of the Easter Bunny you know, or the Tooth Fairy. You know, it was just there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I, I've, I've always been a curious guy. And when I got to this point, and Stanton said, well, why don't you just rewrite a satanic Bible? And I said, well, I'm not a Satanist. He says, so what? You know. <laughs> he says, you can, you can do this because you understand this better than anybody else around, so why don't you just do it? Well, yeah. okay. <laughs> so that's how this thing, this, this book, you know, kind of came into existence. And I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that say, ah, you're just trying to, you know, um, steal the satanic bible you know and I said, well no because there's nothing in here that's in anton's and besides i give due credit and due tribute where it's tribute is due and stuff to the yeah. volume and so on so i don't see that as a problem but there are a lot of people who aren't going to like the fact that this is a uh a mirror being held up uh to them and again um the temple of set is a is, is a small esoteric initiatory uh, system it's not a mass religion never never could be never never has been I mean uh, and and I've I've never assumed that it would be it's always going to be a very very intense initiatory experience you know like the like the the, the young priest in Herbach going through initiation uh, it's a one-on-one thing for only a, a very limited number of people who happen to have this potential in themselves and and a, and a consuming dire to actualize it but out there we live we're still surrounded in what's largely a judeo-christian metaphor society so mm-hmm. there the church of satan was a mass organization and satanism is can be a mass philosophy or a, you know mass ideological system so there's a place for a satanic bible that kind of 
um, outlines it that way, just like there is a place for something called the Boy Scout Handbook to teach people mm-hmm. how to be Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. So this is supposed to be a kind of a Boy Scout Handbook, you know, for for ordinary society out there, for the people who aren't satisfied with the menu of ordinary religions that are out there, uh, but don't know how to do Satanism, and there's nothing to teach them how to be Satanists anymore except this. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I I feel that um, there's nothing in, and, and you're right, you know, there's going to be some pushback, there's going to be some blowback out there, but there's nothing in this satanic Bible that uh, really that refutes or denigrates or, or disrespects in any way anything from the, the, the initial satanic Bible. It simply... It, 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 if anything, it, it alleviates some of the some ambiguities. It, it highlights certain aspects and it delves in deeper and expands um, many aspects of it. So I, I you know, I, and and I can't, you know, I hesitate to do this. I don't want you to take this in the wrong way, but I kind of almost look at it like, you know, the old Battlestar Galactica series and then the mm-hmm. new Battlestar Galactica series, right? It's not like one one's not better than the other. The first one could only be what it was being made in 1978, and the new series could only be, you know, the new series, and then have the opportunity to go way, way beyond it. And 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 I love both of the series. I I, I value both of them like very highly. So there's no there's no need to say, oh, I like this this one better than the other one. It's a reiteration of something and an expansion of something, and it's just revealing the potentials that were always kind of there in the original one, but the original just didn't because, you know, it was the 70s. There's always so much they could do, you know? So um, that's kind of how I feel about it. Uh, yeah, well, the... Uh, um, I, you know, I... I of course, saw the original Battlestar Galactica. I, I wasn't too taken up with the the subsequent one, I guess because I sort of didn't like the way they remorphed some of the characters uh, yeah. uh, to be politically correct and so on. But I could see them trying to definitely to to develop some of the subtle and more sophisticated things in it because the original one was comic booky, you know, mm-hmm. and it was it was a, a very obvious. Um, surfboard on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Glenn Larson is, is trying to make a TV series, you know, uh, that um, would, would uh, take off on that, just the way Star Trek got revived by Star Wars and, and, uh, and came back with a bunch of movies. It would never have happened if it hadn't been for the Star Wars phenomenon. Um, and I see this as, um, again, as, as a kind of a clarification of, of, a, of a concept. I'm not at all, uh, I have no, no conscience bothers at all about uh, uh, following up on the Anton LaVey one. And as I said, mm-hmm. I think that if, if, for example, if people like Stanton and Diane had looked at this project that way, they would both have kicked my ass, you know, um, and neither of them did. You know, and Diane's reaction was... Kind of cute. She more or less said, "Boy, this guy has balls. You know, <laughs> try and do this." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, but 
I don't see it as, in the least, as a disrespectful thing, but I see it as a, a project, as I said, that if he were around, Anton would have been the first one to get involved with and to kind of like it the way it turns out. You know. Mm-hmm. I, I have to ask a question, too. Um, in, in Anton LaVey's letter that he wrote back to you in response to the Ninth Solstice message, mm-hmm. he says the follow-up to the Diabolicon is cybernetic what is that yeah, word I, I, there? <laughs> I i don't i i can't uh, you can make it that what you want to i can't get inside his head either we don't know what um <laughs> no i don't know i don't know exactly what he meant except that i think he 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 assumed that it was a significant term uh-huh. um he certainly didn't reject the document um and uh, he considered it if you go further down as a as a strong validation on my own credentials as a Satanist. Yeah. Um, so I, and, and the, of course, the beginning of the note refers to something else completely. It refers to some an interview or question and answers that I'd given to some lady journalist who had, um, I'd recently spoken with. So that has nothing to do with anything. It just happened to be something he mentioned in the first part of the same note. That's all. Now, it's weird. I'm looking at the word, and I'm like, is that cybernetic? If, do I just want to say it's cybernetic because we were just talking about Battlestar Galactica? Well, at the beginning of the computer age, uh, words like cybernetics were all the rage. I mean, it's okay. sort of a passé term now, but that was the. those were the days when people were writing books about the, this wonderful new thing called a you know, the, the IBM 650 computer that took up rooms and rooms and rooms and rooms. You know, and uh, I remember when I uh, was going through the Industrial College of the Armed Forces, and we were touring some of these um, big cybernetic, uh, you know, these these computer installation things. We we visited Cray Computers, and Cray made these gigantic supercomputers that looked like huge donuts uh, in these big rooms, and they actually the these computers were so overwhelming and so gigantic in their processing, they actually had the things submerged in liquid oxygen because wow. the speed of the electrons moving around in them was so high that these things would have just melted into goo, you know, in normal air-conditioned room temperatures. So they had to actually have them down to, you know, liquid oxygen freezing levels to enable wow. them to function. Today we've got more power than that in an iPhone, so things like terms like cybernetics were this ooh ah ooh ah you know back in the early 1970s. Um, today they're sort of almost forgotten, and we live in a an app an age of apps. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, excellent. So um, people can buy the Satanic Bible 50th Anniversary Revision from Amazon. Well, right now it's just available in the Lulu store because okay. I published it through Lulu. So it's lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U.com. Okay. And uh, it's going to be, it's also going to be out there in the worldwide Amazon uh, network system and in Barnes & Noble and all the rest of that. But they Lulu wants me to take a look at the the first printed copy first and make sure that everything's right with it. So okay. I'm still waiting to get my first printed copy of it. And if I bless that and I find that they didn't print the cover upside down or something, 
All right. Uh, yeah, I'll just say, okay, go ahead. You can release the whole thing, and then it'll be out there, you know, on Amazon and everything else. Right now, it's just right. available within the Lulu system. Right. You can get it, you know, but as I said, I haven't physically, I, I've proofed it as well as I can online, but I actually have to hold the thing in my hands and make sure that it looks the way it should and that everything's positioned right and stuff like that, and then I'll give them the go-ahead. Absolutely. All right, well, I definitely want all of my listeners to watch for this and to check out the Satanic Bible 50th Year Revision and also any of the other many awesome books by Michael Aquino. Um, All of them are very in-depth and will make you a smarter human being. And what is next for Michael Aquino? Well, um, I'm suffering from um, frail health at this point and also from uh, advanced macular degeneration of my eyesight. So I'm even surprised that I was able to get through constructing this uh, satanic Bible because mm-hmm. uh, it takes a lot of eyeball work you know, to, to do books. But fortunately, I'm, I can still function on a, a brightly backlit computer screen um, but I, I'm fast approaching the point where even that probably won't be um, open to me anymore. So this may well be the last book that I've done. Fortunately, uh, in all the 16 books that I've done so far, I've said the stuff that's most important to me that I think that I, other people will find valuable and, and useful to them. So I'm completely content with what I've got out there. This sort of came up as a last-minute burp, you know, by surprise. <laughs> and I, I struggled through it, uh, um, staring pretty hard at the screen, you know, to make sure that I could see everything as well as I could. So I think it came through okay and, and uh, you know, is spelled correctly and formatted right. But I don't think I can write any more books, unfortunately. I think I've... Unless I'm, unless I'm greatly surprised, uh, I think this is probably the, the last thing that I could physically do that way. Well, we sure are thankful that, that this has come into being as it is. And so just know that, you know, we all love you. We all appreciate all the gems you throw out to us and any future gems you might throw our way. We're going to love those too. So... Wish you the. Well, I thank you. I thank you for that, and I, as I said, I I hope that people enjoy this uh, book, that they find it a good, um, a worthy thing to read, and and to provoke some good adventures on their parts. You know, everybody has a bit of Indiana Jones in them, and all you have to do is sort of dangle a um, um, an Ark of the Covenant or something out there, and then. <laughs> People will go out and try and find it, you know. So here's another here's another dangle, you know. If you're interested in Satanism, but you didn't really have a clear picture of it, and the old Satanic Bible didn't quite do it for you, um, particularly since the organization, you know, fizzled and flopped. Here's something you can take a fresh look at and maybe go someplace with. And for example, Stanton has said that he might try to recreate a a new concept of a church of Satan and mm. use this book as a sort of a, uh, a launching pad, a kind of a backbone for uh, its constitution and so on. So this, you know, it's uh, just to see what happens as it were. Yeah. 
No, like I said, I know something's going to come from this. Something completely unexpected um, and 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 just just uh, bizarre. I know is going to come from this. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what happens and grows from it as we move forward into the okay unknowable <laughs> future. <laughs> well, the most interesting thing is, uh, you know, like Enzo Ferrari was used to be asked, "What's the what's your favorite car?" And uh, of all the ones you know that you're responsible for, and he says, "The one I build tomorrow." So that <laughs> was his that was his response to that. There you go. All right. Well, Michael, we've had a good long conversation here. I thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed it too, and I hope people had some questions answered and uh, got some interesting things to think about. And, of course, I hope people who decide to pick up the book enjoy it, learn from it, and, uh, and have a good time with it. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much. And, Kefir. Thank you, Kefir.